Hear now the word of God. There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Our God, as we begin this new book from your word tonight, would you bless it? Would you bless us through it? Would you build in us an anticipation for Christ and a rejoicing that we don't just look forward to Christ, but we really do enjoy him even right now. Give us that enjoyment we ask tonight in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Think of the true crisis points in world history. You know, those moments when people are forced to make a decision about themselves and their lives and what they're going to do in response, where you have to make a choice, you have to do something. And you could, you could think just almost grabbing at uh, you know, even just recent United States history. You could look at, for example, depending on how old you are, this is recent. Uh, in human history, it's recent. The Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Part of the reason we think of the Cuban Missile Crisis as a crisis is because there were missiles within range of the United States mainland. It is a situation, it was a situation where doing nothing might be just as destructive as doing the wrong thing. Something has to be done. Somebody has to act. Something must be done. Or think of, even more recent, you have the financial crisis of 2008, where our our government was, in a sense, forced to reckon with the banking system, right? They had to decide, do we bail out the banks that had made these bad loans? Uh, Are we willing to potentially see the American banking system collapse? At least that's what we were threatened with. If you watch the news day after day after day, it was any day now, we're all going to die. The world's going to catch on fire. You have to do something. And so there is this disastrous moment where something has to be done. And we call it a crisis for a reason. And this is just part of human history. We often find ourselves at a point where we're between a rock and a hard place and there are no good decisions to be made on every side. Well, when the book of 1 Samuel picks up, 
Israel is in a crisis. Israel is in a time of crisis. They are in a crisis of their own. And in only the first eight verses of 1 Samuel, we're introduced to really three kinds of crises that are before us as readers. And so tonight's passage presents us with a national crisis, a family crisis, and a spiritual crisis, basically just taking us from the big picture down to the small. And at every single stage, we see that it actually is legitimately a crisis. And so as we look at all three of these, we will better understand the situation where Israel finds herself and also understand this point in its history. And so first we have a national crisis. Now you remember, perhaps from our series on Judges, the book of Judges covered a period of about 400 years of Israel's history from when Israel entered the land until the time of the kings began. So it led us right up to this moment where, spoiler alert, we're going to start getting kings in Israel. And during that time, during that 400-year stretch in the book of Judges, you got used, I think, to this refrain that we were constantly exposed to. There was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And throughout the book of Judges, we keep hearing that refrain. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So over and over again, we see it and we hear it. And as Judges draws to an end or as Judges drew to an end, we saw the people in truly the lowest place that they had ever been and really the lowest place that we could possibly imagine them. If you remember those final chapters of Judges, that harrowing experience with the priest, you remember that it really truly was one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. And then in response, Israel decides to turn against their own people because their own people have now become worse than the pagan nations all around. Israel entered into full-scale war with the tribes turning against their own. And then even at the last moment, what do they do? They pull back. And they do even more evil, deciding we won't destroy the wicked tribe after all. And they steal wives and they bring them back from the precipice because they think they're more merciful than God. And so all of that darkness and all of that sin and all of that godlessness in Israel has played itself out. Here Israel is at the close of the book of Judges. There is no rescue. There's nothing that looks better. There is no, no optimistic conclusion to that book. The book just ends with Israel being in a worse position than it's ever been before. Israel has hollowed itself out. Israel has destroyed itself from within. And so here they are. They find themselves in this moment where God doesn't raise up a savior. He doesn't raise up a judge like he did before. And so the book ends with that sad, familiar refrain. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the book ends on this dark note of national crisis. There is no king in Israel. Israel as a nation needs God to raise up another judge, just like he's always done, just like he did time and again in the book of Judges. And not only does Israel need a new judge, not only do they need God as their king, but as the book opens, they are even under covenant sanctions by God. This really is more than just a single situation where somebody's having trouble having a baby. 
Because if you remember, if you read through the book of, of Deuteronomy, and we will actually see this in the coming weeks and months as we read through Deuteronomy together, as you get to the end of Deuteronomy, God in his, in his covenant actually promises all sorts of good things if the people will obey him. Uh, one of the things that we see here is the barrenness of Hannah is a reflection of the national situation in Israel as it's going on. Because remember, God told Adam and Eve, he said, be fruitful and multiply. And then he put Israel in the land and he told them, be fruitful and multiply. And then he told them that when they go into the land, that if they're faithful, he would make them be fruitful and multiply. And so you have this one recurrent command that keeps being repeated constantly. And Leviticus 26 reminds us, he says, if you walk in my statutes, if you observe my commandments and do them, I will give you rains in their season. You shall eat your bread to the full. I will give you peace in the land. I shall chase your enemies and they shall fall. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. You may also remember very early on is actually, I think, the first series I did in the evenings when I got here. We looked at the book of Ruth. And in the beginning of the book of Ruth, do you remember why Ruth and her husband ran to the other nations? It was because there was a famine in the land. And the book of Ruth happens during the time of the judges. And so, you, and, that's, and so what we see is the famine in the land is actually God covenantally punishing them because of their unfaithfulness. And now here we have childlessness. Um, childlessness is happening in Israel. Now, childlessness in Israel was not just a personal issue. It was a national issue, and it was a spiritual issue. That does not mean that there is an application today that says that if you have a problem with childlessness or barrenness, that you are being necessarily punished by God. That is not the case. But in Israel's unique situation, in their case and in their time, childlessness was a sign of God's covenant sanctions against them. He told them he would do this to them if they were unfaithful and if they were disobedient. So here they are in this low, low place as a nation. And so you see, Hannah is unfruitful, just like Israel is unfruitful. Right? Hannah is watching as her, her neighbors are being fruitful, her neighbors are multiplying, and yet she isn't as much as she wants to. She isn't fruitful, she isn't multiplying. And so the angst that she feels is and should be the angst of Israel. Hannah is crying out for a child, and Israel should be crying out for a savior. They should be crying out for God to raise up a king who will submit himself to the king of kings. That's what Israel needs in this moment. And so as this book opens, God is setting the stage for the arrival of really the last in the long line of judges, and that's Samuel. This little boy that's going to come from this whole entire episode is the last of the judges. But before we meet this judge, we need the picture to fully come together. God will raise up his final judge and he'll do it in a time of national crisis, which is exactly what they're experiencing right now. Second, we have here a family crisis. Here's the interesting thing about this, this book. Judges ends on this epic high stakes 
national situation with massive armies and civil war, tens of thousands of, of men going to battle, clashing against one another. And then the book just ends, and when its sequel picks up, it just pulls back from all of that. You know, it pulls back from the big Lord of the Rings sized scale, and it comes back down to an intimate situation with this family. It's just a modest family, domestic situation, the sort of situation I think most of us probably wouldn't envy as we look at what it's like to live in this house. It's the home of this man, Elkanah. And Elkanah is just called a certain man. Uh, There's really nothing else to say other than he just was an average person. He wasn't somebody special. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a ruler. he's, He's not a judge. He's just a certain man. That's the most interesting thing that the author of Samuel can say about him. But this is perhaps more interesting about Elkanah. He has two wives. And the text lists Hannah first. Probably she was his first wife. Probably he married Hannah. He married her, it seems, for love, the sort of, the sort of uh, way that their relationship is described here at least. Um, and it seems to be as so com- was so common in Israel when the first wife was unable to produce an heir. It seems that Elkanah took a second wife in a sense to sort of try again, kind of like Abraham did with his own wife. And this second try, in a sense, is her name is Peninnah. And it's in this situation that we see the, the family in a true, genuine crisis because... Here's where the real trouble enters. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Think about this. A situation with two wives is already a recipe for disaster. Um, Jesus reminds us. He reminds us what God's map for the family is. It's one man and one woman leaving their father and mother and being united in one flesh. That's what marriage is. In scripture and in reality, it is one man and one woman. Anything else ends up being a curse, not a blessing. Polygamy, in this case, is the perversion of marriage that happens here. It's, it was never God's will in scripture. Even when you see it being regulated in the law, It is an unpleasant situation, sort of like when God regulates divorce or when he regulates slavery. This is not the ideal of the human condition. And yet, why does Jesus say that God regulated divorce in the law? He doesn't regulate it because he loves it. He regulates it because he knows that people will do it. And if he doesn't regulate it, then there's going to be even greater disaster that comes about. And so he does the same for polygamy in the law. Now, this much is true. Many of the ancient fathers of Israel did have multiple wives. But if you look at Scripture, one of the things Tim Keller points out, I, I think he's, he's accurate about this, look at the trajectory in the lives of the men in Scripture who have multiple wives, and over and over again you see that, the, that those with multiple wives, their multiple wives end up leaving them miserable. It is not a blessing to have many, many wives. 
Um, They end up, Abraham, Jacob, David, all of them end up experiencing deep family problems as a direct consequence of them taking another wife and stepping outside of the boundaries of what God has set for the family to be. And so Elkanah is, is, is in this home with two women whose conflict surely brings pure misery to this home. Elkanah knows that his wife is hurting. And he can see the way that Peninnah is hurting her. And we see he sacrifices a double portion for Hannah. And the text tells us what motivates that. It says he does it because he loves her. He's a loving man. But uh, we would be remiss if we didn't point out he does seem a bit tone deaf, doesn't he? Um, You look at verse 8. And he asks her, Hannah, why do you weep? You know, it's like looking at someone who's just broken their leg and saying, what's the matter? Why are you crying? You know, it's, it's obvious what's going on here. Now, honestly, that should have been reason enough for him to get a frying pan in the face. Just what are you thinking, man? He's, and then, he's, then he goes on and he makes it, I think, so much worse. He says, am I not more to you than 10 sons? Now, listen, Elkanah. I know you must be quite a catch. You know, you just, you think this guy really, he seems to really think that he's, he's quite the consolation prize in this situation. But um, most of the time, I think this is a good lesson for men and it's a lesson I still need to learn and my wife will tell you this. But when your wife is hurting, the thing she wants is not for you to solve her problem. That's really not what she's looking for. What she's looking for is for you to give her permission to hurt and give her a hug and let her know that you're there for her and, and you love her. And that's what, that's what Hannah needs from Elkanah right now. What she doesn't need is Elkanah coming to her and saying, look, I'm better than a baby. <laughs> that's, that's not the case. Um, typically, people do not have babies because they are unhappy in their marriage. And he seems to almost infer that in this situation. Hey, if you were happy with me, you'd be fine with not having a child. And it's like, this is not that. These are different things. Now, so there's a lot to be unhappy with in this situation. Two lives, two wives is difficult. Factor in the childlessness of the one. And you have what you would call a perfect storm, a perfect relational storm. You know, it's hard enough to be infertile. And to see your friends and your neighbors and your family members successfully reproducing, having babies. But imagine sharing a house with her. Hannah's his wife, but so is Peninnah. And it's almost as if to twist the knife, Peninnah's name actually means fruitful. Peninnah's name means fruitful. You want to talk about a painful reminder. Every time... Hannah says her name, he is saying she is fruitful. It's like every time that she's saying her name, the knife is being twisted in because Peninnah's name feels fitting. She is being fruitful. She is producing children. And then Hannah's name means favored one. And to her, you must imagine to her, It feels ironic. It doesn't feel like the name that she should have. She doesn't feel favored. She doesn't wake up in the morning and hear this other woman's children crying and these new babies. And she sees her stomach swelling. She doesn't feel favored at all. 
She wonders, why am I not favored? Why does she get all the favor? Why does she get the, uh, the favor of, of, El- of Elkanah? Why does she get the favor of God? And why am I left alone? Ralph Davis, in his commentary on this book, imagines how painful things must be living in this house. He sort of imagines it like this. I, I, I think this is helpful. I'm going to try to act it out. We'll see how it goes. Now, do all your children have your food? Dear me, there are so many of you, it is hard to keep track. Mommy, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. What did you say, dear? I said, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Miss Hannah, oh, yes, that's right. She doesn't have any children. Doesn't she want any children? Oh, yes, she wants children very much. Wouldn't you say so, Hannah? Don't you wish you had children too? Doesn't daddy want Miss Hannah to have kids? Oh, certainly, yes, she do. he does. But Miss Hannah keeps disappointing him. She just can't have kids. Why not? Why? Because God won't let her. Does God not like Miss Hannah? Well, I don't know. What do you think? Oh, by the way, Hannah, did I tell you I'm pregnant again? You think you'll ever get pregnant, Hannah? And you could imagine this happens. The text tells us year after year, jabbing, picking, taunting even. The text says her rival used to provoke her grievously. You you can't think of a more upsetting word than grievously. She is brought to grief when she is poked like this. Hannah is barren. And this notion of the barren woman is recurrent in Scripture. It happens repeatedly. You have Sarah. You have Rebecca. You have Manoah's wife. She isn't given a name, but you might remember her as the mother of Samson. We met her in Judges. All of these are barren women who cried out to God in the midst of their deep, serious pain, and God heard their prayers. Ralph Davis calls it the fellowship of barrenness. The fellowship of barrenness is a recurrent string running through Scripture. You can follow it all the way from from Judges all the way up to the Messiah himself. So our God, you see it in Scripture, has a certain affinity for helpless and hopeless cases. We see this all the time in the Bible. He takes total inability and he uses it as his canvas to show his power and his show his grace and to show his mercy. You see, Hannah is totally powerless to fix this situation. All she can do, all she can do is cry out to God as if God looks at her. It's almost like God looks at her situation and he says, now this I can work with. It's what God did with you and me, right? If you follow Jesus, then he took you, an impossible case, someone that never should have walked before him, never should have repented, never should have followed after him, and he changed your heart and he inclined you to him 
even though there was nothing in you that loved him or found him delightful. And now what do you do? You run to Jesus and you cling to him and you say, I trust in you. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You never would have said that before. And yet he worked on the hopeless case that is you and he drew you to himself. And that's what he did. He saved you in the same way that he took this hopeless case and he saved her. Now, there is another woman in Scripture, who was barren, and God blessed her with a son. I didn't mention her name, but I think you might remember who it is. It's Elizabeth. In the New Testament, John the Baptist's mother, right? She is, she is barren. She cries out. God hears her. And her son was the herald, the forerunner, the one whose purpose was to prepare us for the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would sit on the throne of David. And I, and I want you to see this. There are these connections here between Samuel and between, uh, and between uh, John the Baptist, right? Samuel is the forerunner for King David, and John the Baptist was the forerunner for King Jesus. So you see all these parallels in the life of Samuel and the way Samuel is born, John and the way John is born, the way that Samuel functions in relation to David and the way that John functions in relation to Jesus. Samuel is like John the Baptist in a way here. I mean, think about this. The, the, in his ministry, Samuel is going to ordain David as the king of Israel. And what does John the Baptist do? He pours the water on the head of Jesus, just like Samuel pours the oil over the head of King David. There are these amazing blessings God is going to bring out of the situation, just like he does in the New Testament with Jesus. But God is going to raise up this final judge. He's going to raise up Samuel, and he'll do it in the midst of this family crisis. Third, this evening, our passage reflects a genuine spiritual crisis. It's a crisis of faith for this one faithful woman, Hannah, because let's face it, Hannah's situation is very painful. She's, she's been tormented by her rival. She has been tormented by her own thoughts. She has been tormented by her own insecurity, her own insufficiency as a woman. If you have experienced what Hannah has experienced, then you understand well the sort of thoughts that assail this poor woman. I have known many close friends, several close friends who struggled through childlessness. Um, I remember one couple, they spent an absolute fortune trying to get help from doctors. But more than anything, they, they cried out to God. And I, I think those of us who have lots of children, I, I don't think we understand the pain. I don't think we understand what Hannah is going through, even if we think we can imagine it. But let me suggest something, though. Look at verse 5. It says, the Lord had closed her womb. Yahweh had closed her womb. In other words, Hannah is not at the mercy of the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. She isn't subject to the randomness of the universe. This is not chance. None of this is an accident. The text tells us the Lord had closed her womb. And it doesn't say it uh, was just a one-time thing in verse 7. It says, so it went on year by year. Years and years go by. Not days. Not weeks. Not months. But years. 
And the text says that the result is years and years of weeping and fasting and praying and crying out to God to help in something that nobody could do anything to help. Nobody could do anything to change. And here is the lesson. The lesson isn't God's going to open your womb if you just pray hard enough. That's not necessarily the case. He may. Uh, I remember a couple that we went to college with and they were childless and they struggled and they struggled for years and years and they had decided we're never going to be able to have kids. And now they have like loads of kids, (laughs) tons of kids. It just happens sometimes. God just does a good thing. He just does a pleasant thing. He just he does it for his own reasons. Right. And yet the lesson here, as I say, is not pray hard enough. And you'll get what you ask for. Not necessarily. The lesson here is this. Our pains and our griefs are not accidents. Even the things in our life that may lead to deep sorrow and depression are not accidents. One of the early church fathers was John Chrysostom. His sermons were very influential during the Reformation. The Reformers loved to quote John Chrysostom's sermons. Well, he was a very old writer. He wrote back in the 300s. And this is what he said about Hannah. He says, if we are suffering grief and pain, even if the trouble seems insupportable to us, let us not be anxious or beside ourselves, but wait on God's providence He is well aware, after all, when is the time for what is causing us depression to be removed. It is not out of hatred that he closed her womb, but to open to us the doors of the values of the woman possessed and to see the riches of her faith. So Chrysostom is saying, look at at Hannah's situation. God didn't hate Hannah. He didn't hate Hannah, but he was using the situation to bring her faith into full fruit. So in this case, uh, Chrysostom says, we may not know all of God's reasons, but we know one thing. Her faith in her sorrow is an example for us. Charles Spurgeon knew very well the weight of depression and sorrow. He he preached through tears and pain. Uh, He struggled with gout. He struggled with serious bouts of depression that lasted years and years. And he understood. And actually, the thing that held him up was knowing that his suffering was not an accident. Listen to how Spurgeon puts it. He says, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me. That the bitter cup was never filled by his hand. That my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. And so Hannah goes years without seeing this child, and yet she doesn't lose heart. She keeps praying. She keeps fasting. She lets her tears flow freely. She weeps. She lets her emotions be known. But in all of this, she is a beautiful example of faith and trust and the love of God. She believes him. She believes his wisdom. She doesn't know what motivates his wisdom. She doesn't know what motivates him to act as she does, but she does know that he's good. And we will see that faith and trust and love expressed next week as we look at Hannah's song. 
But the book of 1st to 2nd Samuel gives us King David. But, but before, and we want to, I think we want to just rush to King David. And sometimes it's funner just to start reading 2nd Samuel, right? Let's just get right into the midst of King David. But isn't it interesting? Half of Samuel is anticipating King David. Half of Samuel is waiting for the real king to be instituted. And, and I think there's a message there for us, which is that the wait and the anticipation of, of the coming king is part of life. It's part of what our experience is. You see, before we can have King David, we have to have King Saul. And before we can have King Saul, we need Samuel. And before we get Samuel, we need the barrenness and we need the emptiness And we need the times of begging and weeping and pleading. And just like Jesus had John the Baptist, which we saw already this evening, King David has a forerunner of his own, and that's Samuel. And just like John the Baptist, Samuel has this remarkable birth. And so tonight, this passage ends on a note of expectation, not fulfillment. We don't get the fulfillment yet. We don't get to move uh, from verse 8 onward just yet. We need to linger here because we know what's coming, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet. And so, so let's not rush on. Let's live in Hannah's shoes this week. Let's live in Hannah's shoes. Let's expect good things, even though they haven't come yet. At least in the text, not quite yet. You know, we live in expectation too as Christians. You know, even though Christ has come, we still know what it is to look to the future. We still know what it is to fix our gaze to the horizon and wait eagerly for God to send his Savior for us one last time. He, he's come, but we are still waiting for him to come again. So like Hannah, we know what it is to look ahead. We know what it is to expect good things, but to also know they aren't here just quite yet. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for rescuing us in our inability. We thank you for coming in our impossible situation and saving us from the pit of despair. We were unfruitful. We had barren souls. We had no life in us. And you showed your grace and saved us. And we know what it is to look ahead expectantly. Lord, would you give us an eternal perspective, would you give us hearts and minds that are set on Christ and especially on his return? We know that he is coming to raise the quick and the dead and the sons of men. So like Hannah, O God, give us expectant hearts. Set our eyes on you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, man.